Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? I'm good, John. I'm here. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. And the reason I'm talking quick is I want to get to our guests. We're really lucky to have a, a very inter- interesting guest for you this week, Emmanuel Daniel, the author of The Great Transition, The, Personaliz- the Personalization of Finance what? is here. Uh, looks yeah. really interesting. And also the founder uh, for the past uh, 20, uh, 28 years, it looks like here, uh, the Asian banker. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Uh, great to be on your show. Uh, you know, uh, let's get right into uh, the conversation. So and, many uh, things. You guys, are, you guys are in San Francisco, aren't you? Like I, today I'm uh, in Dubai. It's one o'clock in the morning and, um, you know, I could be anywhere. So that's, uh, that, you know, just that's to give right. people perspective for where we, we both are. I'm in San Francisco. I've been mugged twice today. My car has been broken into and uh, oh my no, God. it's yeah. not that bad. No, it's not like the hype. <laughs> You hear about, uh, but you, yeah, you're in Dubai, a very interesting place, a lot going on there. Uh, what do you see from there these days? Well, you know, I, I'm the founder of the Asian Banker, and for 28 years, I covered, um, you know, traditional banking, uh, everything for every country from Korea to Australia, from the Philippines, and into the Middle East and into Africa. Uh, the funny thing about being called the Asian banker is that we're not Asian anymore, and um, you know, and we're not banker anymore because um, uh-huh. you know your your audience in 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 fintech will tell you that um, you know banking is no longer uh, driven by by uh, uh, by bankers anymore. So so you know it's taken a whole new dimension and uh, perspective. Uh, out of Dubai, we we actually cover a lot of Africa. So um, you know payments. Um, blockchain projects, um, you know, and then of course the you know the uh, microfinance, uh, um, getting the unbanked uh, banked, and then you know in any one year I'm like in New York like five to six times, and then and then I'm in Africa four or five times, um, and the the stark contrast of uh, of how fintech is evolving, um, you know, in different parts of the world. Um, you know, and last year at, at Money 2020, by the way, uh, the most interesting session for me was uh, on the last day, there were three African, uh, you know, uh, speakers, panelists on the stage, just uh, going on and on about, my goodness, the, you know, the, the payment systems in the US sucks. You know, it takes, you know, you, you need so much documentation to open a bank account and then takes days to, you know, have things verified and all that. And in Africa, we just get it done on our mobile phone instantly, uh, you know. And then you start seeing, um, you know, what legacy actually looks like and, and what, um, you know, a clean slate and, and greenfield, um, you know, developments look like. So uh, there are things where, the rest of the world is moving a lot faster than the U.S., uh, but that's also that's only because uh, there's so much legacy in the U.S. and especially in areas like payments. Um, you know, right now, Fed now is like it's uh, coming on stream, and I'm just reading the literature uh, and all the conversations going on about how suspicious everybody is about Fed now, and and then to think that many countries around the world already have instant pay, and instant pay is a normal way of life. Um, you know, and, and then that gives rise to digital wallets, um, ecosystems, and then, you know, into the metaverse and all that. Uh, and the U.S. hasn't even started, uh, you know, and, and, and so on. So, so um, uh, you know, uh, seeing these different perspectives uh, also puts into context 
um, you know, how uh, the different participants in this great fintech race, um, you know, the laggards are players like Visa and MasterCard who have a very well-built, um, you know, uh, architecture, uh, legacy architecture from which uh, they uh, generate incredible amount of uh, income for both for themselves and for their member institutions, you know, and, and that's not going away uh, anytime soon. And then when you go into a clean slate, green, greenfield sort of a setup like, you know, Kenya or, or you know, or Nigeria or Ghana, uh, you'll see that uh, at the end of the day, a payments, um, a, a payments, trans, uh, you know, transaction is uh, is the same as a messaging transaction. Uh, a payment is a form of a message. And Walter Walter Riston said this um, in 1969 that that uh, money is a form of information. Uh, you know, and and uh, it is today. And and uh, if you can send a text message or a, or a WhatsApp message for free, there's no reason at all why you can't send a payments instruction for free. Uh, and then you add the layers on top of that. You've got KYC. You've got uh, money, you know, money laundering and stuff like that, and and that's what that's what adds the cost on on top of the structure, uh, and then in, in the U.S. you got so many layers of players uh, uh, who benefit from the current structure that that's not that's very difficult to dismantle, um, you know. So so that you know, like so that's the nice thing about traveling around the world and then and then seeing the different dimensions, um, you know, uh, playing out. Steve, you're fascinated with uh, Dubai and the UAE. Have Have you been there yet? Um, no, I, I actually haven't. But but I'm curious because, as you say, um, it seems like that whole region is sort of greenfield, um, very forward looking. Not a whole lot of legacy infrastructure to 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 deal with as well. And I'm wondering, from a consumer perspective, what are you seeing that's different in 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 Dubai, or more broadly speaking, in the UAE, that maybe you don't see in say in the US or Western Europe, which are much more similar in terms of their reliance on legacy systems is it is is it really uh, uh sort of the the future of what of what banking and payments and finance looks like or is it or do they have a or or how do they take a different approach to addressing these issues um actually uh, again i see different dimensions i'm actually from southeast asia i spent a lot of time in china uh which is celebrated for its uh, you know pay alipay and wechat pay uh and uh dubai has its own version of uh, those payment uh infrastructure uh, mm. the the defining feature of the middle east or the gcc countries the the gulf cooperative state countries uh is that they are all subscale in terms of population uh and super scale in terms of capital and and uh and money. So um, it's just uh, a lot of money looking for, um, you know, what's what can be scaled. Uh, everything that you talk about in fintech today is about scale, it's about platforms, uh, it's about onboarding as many people as possible and then monetizing them. Uh, and, and that, you, you, it's, very, it's a very modest field, um, the, you know, not just Dubai, but the whole region. Um, the outlier right now, who, who is now uh, got into the rink and, and, and is raising very quickly, is Saudi Arabia. Uh, for a long time, that's the one country that is nearly impossible to get into, um, you know, there's lots of restrictions and all that. And now they, they're giving Dubai a run for their money. Uh, and the big and the big um, profiling, um, you know, the, the big profile of this region is this: that yes, Saudi makes mo most of its money from oil. Um, so does you know Kuwait and so on and Bahrain. But 
the UAE is like the Singapore of the Middle East. It's only it only generates six seven percent of its GDP from actual oil. Um, you know the rest of it is uh, as a trading port, as a service center, as a banking center, and so on. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that that <clears throat> that it's not oil that defines uh, the UAE. It's uh, it's services. Um, you know, and as long as the rest of the region is inefficient. The UAE um, uh, benefits from that, uh, but if any of the other countries in the region, whether it's um, Saudi, Saudi Arabia or even Yemen, for example, uh, the moment they get themselves organized, um, you know, or, or Iran, which is the huge northern neighbor, um, you know, when when they get themselves organized, um, you know, then uh, then the UAE loses a little bit of its uh, um, you know luster. Now the big thing here is that. Uh, they have been willing, and actually, this is the same thing can be said about Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, uh, these are jurisdictions that have been willing to uh, push the envelope on on uh, decentralized finance uh, and uh, and crypto. Um, you know, so there are clearer legislations here than in the U.S. Uh, for um, you know for cryptocurrencies and tokens and token and a token economy. Um, so the, the the digital assets and stuff like that. It's it's uh, the structure is in place. So if you came here to apply for a license, um, you know they they will do their due diligence on you. And as long as there's no um, you know um, overt problems, they they probably give you the license. Uh, and and so it is that um, many of the um, you know challenger institutions in in um, in decentralized finance, they are going around the world looking for. A respected jurisdiction that will 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 label them that will you know say that they are legit uh, and so so the UAE is one of them uh, it's actually more Abu Dhabi than Dubai um, uh, you know but it's the UAE so um, uh, and and in the last thirty years they they built a pretty credible uh, jurist I mean uh, regulatory ju jurisdiction so it's it uh, it stands. Um, high, but not as high as Singapore, or Hong Kong, because uh, I think the U.S. still has problems with uh, with Dubai on the on the money laundering front. So um, you know, but they're working on it, and and um, you know, but they they are credible, and and uh, um, uh, several players, even from Asia, uh, come up here to get a license, and then they go out to the larger countries in North Africa, uh, Egypt, um, you know, Ethiopia. Uh, and um, and Kenya and and so on. So uh, so this is sort of a launching pad for the rest of the region. Hmm. Um, recently, I, I've had uh, conversations with a couple of um, uh, wealth management platform players. Um, so they all they're doing all the right things. They look like a Merrill Lynch, but they don't have the scale. Um, you know, so scale of customer base data uh, that they can play with. Um, you know, and therefore the profitability to to be able to you know to 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 say that they are a good player, and uh, also they don't have the market uh, that can help them um, you know uh, realize the profitability or or, or you know uh, sell out and and uh, and get an IPO going. So the IPO market is um, it's not here that you would you would uh, launch your 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 successful fintech. Yeah. So it's interesting because you, you mentioned the the IPO market as well, and I'm wondering, um, since as you say, there's a lot of capital in the UAE, but it seems like there isn't a lot of people, or rather, you know, people who live there 
on a full-time permanent basis. Um, and I'm wondering, ha, ha, have you seen a shift in sort of invasive resources from away from the US, you know, EU countries and China into the UAE? Or do they still go about it more in terms of um, investing through sovereign wealth funds into other VCs that are based elsewhere? Mm. The, the sovereign wealth funds, all of them, uh, the Singapore one, uh, the Chinese one, and, and also uh, the one here in Abu Dhabi, uh, and and the uh, Saudi uh, wealth fund, kingdom fund, and all that, uh, they they tend to invest away from their jurisdiction. So the idea mm-hmm. is that in the long term, um, you know, that they are invested in other parts of the world um, uh, as a matter of sh- safety uh, and diversification. Uh, so you won't hear um, a Saudi uh, wealth fund being invested in in Dubai or in UAE very much. Uh, and in as much as they would be in, you know, in the US, in, 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 U, in U, the UK uh, and in uh, and Europe, um, you know, and the Chinese are here in a big way. Um, so in terms of, um, uh, in terms of the capital required to start anything, uh, despite the fact that the sovereign wealth funds are not that active in their own jurisdictions, um, there is a lot of money. Um, it's just that uh, because the population is small. However, uh, all of the GCC countries have been taking steps like, um, you know, when I started coming to the UAE 20 years ago, um, everyone was from somewhere else. You stand in a cab queue and, you know, like you see people from all over the world and none of, none of them are from here. Um, you know, and 30 years, 20 years later, um, you know, there are people born here. Uh, and uh, they've been they've been giving out ten year visas uh, and uh, to be resident here. Uh, and people, you can buy property here. Uh, and they've started giving out citizenship to very very selected uh, individuals. So the the transient population has becoming it has been becoming uh, increasingly domiciled, uh, which then has uh, an effect on property prices. Um, I would in the past I wouldn't think of buying property in in um, in the UAE uh, because um, you just get this feeling that everyone's just parking their wealth here, um, you know, and then and then the moment something happens, um, you know, it just flees. Uh, but I, I'm beginning to see that um, that uh, there are people from around the world who are considering uh, Dubai and and the and the UAE as home, and the other countries, the other GCC countries are also competing for that money. So the you know big, Dubai's biggest uh, competitor that way is Qatar, uh, which is also a small jurisdiction uh, trying to make itself attractive to um, as many foreigners, uh, and and they are you know they're non-judgmental as to where you come from. Um, you know, if you've got money and if you've got a business idea that can work. Um, so, and the population has been increasing, like, you know, the population here is like nine point something million. So the, the whole uh, the whole of the UAE and Dubai is like five million. That's the size of, that's nine million is the, twice the size of Singapore, um, you know, and, um, um, you know, so it's a, it's a sustainable um, population with a core, um, you know, and that that's the big, change that has been t- taking place that that the investable assets here uh, have become more real now than before uh, mm-hmm. more recently uh, it's the russians who are here in a big way you know so oh interesting the, the big the big thing is uh, uh, and i had a staff who was russian and and then he left us because he got a better job but uh, 
but um, uh, the Russians, um, can, uh, you know, they, it's a direct flight from Moscow or, you know, any of the major cities in Russia. It's also a direct flight from Ukraine, um, you know, and this is the one place where the Ukrainians and the Russians, um, you know, mourn with each other over a drink, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, uh, you know, so that that, that's, that influx has raised um, rental prices here uh, and so on. It's made it a little more difficult for uh, people who are living here to, you know, to uh, put up with the, the rise in cost uh, because of that. Um, you know, and, and the other group is uh, the Chinese. Um, uh, you know, the interesting thing about a place like uh, the Middle East is that uh, it's a region with a lot of capital, but also benefits from incredibly low costs. Um, of services of infrastructure because it uh, it absorbs um, the energy of the developing countries all around it uh, all around them so you know like like um, any of the construction projects will just hire thousands of workers from India and, and um, Indian Indian subcontinent uh, and and they um, you know immediately uh, incredibly cheap labor and so on. And yes, there were issues uh, related to, you know, um, uh, abuses and so on in the past, but they are pretty strict uh, as, a, as, a, as a jurisdiction. I have an office here. Uh, the visa requirements are very strict and, um, you know, the protection for workers. And, you know, like for example, if I were to hire a, a, a worker who's not from here, um, uh, it automatically the law requires me to have, um, um, you know, repatriation costs, which is at the end of the contract, I have to buy a, a plane ticket for that person to go back, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And that's required by law. So, so they do have laws in place, but, you know, for, for some professions or, you know, the, the lower professions, um, you know, maybe they're not being as protected as they should be. Now, why I said that is because um, um, China offers this proposition that it's the world's lowest cost, um, you know, uh, manufacturer, uh, you know, and then when it when it tries to expand its uh, Belt and Road, um, you know, uh, program to the rest of the world, uh, its selling feature is that uh, it can provide armies of uh, uh, workers who can come in there, build your railway track, and leave, and then you have a railway track. You know, so, um, and they've been doing that in a lot of African countries. Uh, the big difference between Chinese road and belt um, projects and Western aid is that Western aid comes and it disappears. Uh, the Chinese projects, the building actually goes up and, you know, the railway, the, the, rail, the trains are running on the railway 18 months later. Um, you know, but, um, but when the Chinese try to be uh, relevant to the Middle East, uh, the Middle East benefits from an even lower cost base uh, in terms of building the infrastructure and so on. Uh, so I'm just observing how that uh, dynamics is working out uh, in the relationship with the Chinese. But I'll say this, that, um, you know, while the Chinese nickel and dime and, um, you know, and sort of like pull the carpet from under the feet of some of the countries that they deal with, in other words, they, they, char they charge incredibly high prices for uh, basic infrastructure. And then, you know, there's this thing called the debt economy and all that. Uh, but for the Middle East, uh, there's been some very good um, uh, projects uh, in transfer of technology. In Saudi Arabia, they've got a railway, the high-speed railway now that runs from Riyadh to Jeddah. Uh, and I think it's from Jeddah to Medina as well. Uh, and, and it's on desert land. 
and in order to do that, you you actually have to de-desertify the land by you know making it possible to grow plants and stuff uh, and stabilize the land before you uh, before you build a rail track. Uh, and that's technology that the Chinese had uh, perfected in uh, in Xinjiang and and in uh, Tibet, uh, and they've made that available to the Saudis. So um, so I see them treating this region with a little bit more respect than the rest of the world. Um, you know, so yeah, that, that, those are my observations uh, at, the ground, at, the, at the ground level. So, so from that perspective, I'm, I'm curious as well, because you mentioned, you mentioned China and sort of the, I think you mentioned as well, the fact that they can be non-judgmental, which is sort of a contrast to what you see from the US and the EU. And I'm wondering, mm. you know, since you have a very global perspective, right? You, you are, you're obviously in, 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 in the Gulf right now, you've worked in Singapore um, as well. And I'm wondering, um, do you think that the world is moving towards a more non-judgmental approach to say things like funding or aid or collaboration, or will sort of the more, um, Western liberal democracy approach of uh, helping, but also being, being, being a bit judgy, will that main, remain the status quo or will that sort of um, maintain its momentum now? Or will we go to the more Chinese model of just, here's some money, we're, we're just sort of more transactional in a way, we're not going to worry about your human 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 rights records um, and, and just as long as we can benefit from it from a real politic perspective, that makes sense. So which model do you think will come um, on top in the next, I don't know, 10 years or so? Uh, very, very interesting question. Uh, and here's my take, okay? I, I've been in China since the year 2000, mm -hmm. the year before China joined the WTO. Um, the chairman of any number of the large banks are my friends. They are my personal friends. So, um, uh, and I have an office in Beijing and, uh, and I, you know, and I've um, built very good relationships there. Uh, and this is what I'll say, uh, that uh, the current Chinese leadership um, does not appreciate that until um, Western capital, that means American capital, came in to fund uh, the largest of its, or the most promising of its startups, which are now the largest institute, uh, private sector institutions in the country, China would not have, uh, have stood a chance uh, to have created uh, some of the largest, um, um, you know, tech companies in the world today. Okay. Um, now the state uh, has used a lot of its funding uh, to support the state-owned enterprises, um, and uh, for that, it also has to absorb uh, a lot of the inefficiencies and the cost of the state-owned enterprises, and all that is sitting hidden away in two big asset management companies, uh, and so on. Now, I still remember the time when Alibaba had its first $10 million from Goldman Sachs. It was a small newspaper article, um, you know, and, uh, and, then, and then Masahoshi San, uh, Masahoshi San, um, you know, was the main, uh, um, you know, supporter of, uh, of Alibaba. And that was like choosing one out of 130, something like that, um, uh, startups uh, in, the, in the website business. Uh, essentially, um, you know, and um, and then for it to be a $350 billion company today, um, a lot of that is supported by uh, Western capital. Um, however, uh, what I've seen uh, is that uh, the capital deployed to uh, a company like um, Alibaba, uh, then I call it the cascading effect. 
So if when, when you have a $300 billion company sitting in a town called Hangzhou in China, mm-hmm. uh, that gives rise, gives it the ability to raise another 20 $10 billion companies, which then gives rise to the ability to raise another 100 $1 billion companies. Uh, and so the cascading ca- um, effect of capital uh, creates the, 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 uh, the compounded ecosystem uh, that is now just Hangzhou, right? And then Shenzhen has got uh, another set of companies uh, which, um, you know, uh, um, which, which also are listed in, in mostly in the US, uh, but also in Hong Kong and, and so on. Um, now, the, uh, the cascading effect, I've seen in China, uh, the cascading effect of capital, um, you know, and, and the state is not able to provide that cap- capital. Uh, China's own stock market uh, is 70% owned by the state, or rather the state is the biggest investor in its own stock market, um, you know, and uh, the state is afraid of uh, great uh, high fluctuations in the market. So it gives very, very guarded access to foreign investors. Um, it, it tries to protect its uh, local uh, citizens. Uh, in other words, if the market falls, you're going to have riots on the street and uh, streets and, and the state just won't have it. Um, you know, so, so um, and uh, the creation of the large uh, profit-oriented, efficient private sector um, uh, in China is an entirely new creation. It's a creation in the last 20 years. Um, didn't exist before. Um, you know, it, it, this is like the US in the early 1990s, the Rockefellers and so on. Uh, they were a new creation, the, the idea of a, of a, of a private sector. Um, and before that, uh, anything of scale had to be built by the state. Um, you know, so, uh, so China is, um, uh, you know, dealing with that, uh, putting in place the, the, the governance and the regulation and uh, antitrust uh, programs and so on and data protection and all that uh, to, to, to be able to contain this new set of players. And then I see that capital is actually finite and it moves. Um, you know, so when la- the last two years, uh, when the current uh, administration of uh, Xi Jinping, uh, you know, um, you know, put a stop to, or rather, uh, you know, put a heavy hand on on uh, Jack Ma and so on, um, you know, foreign capital moved, uh, and it moved to Southeast Asia, it moved to India, uh, India compared to China, um, you know, could not even name 10, um, you know, um, uh, billion dollar startups uh, five years ago. And now it's got like a hundred and something, um, you know, so, uh, and that's, that's global capital moving uh, around mm-hmm. the world, um, you know, and, and, and in Southeast Asia, none of our stock markets can contain a $10 billion company. Uh, and um, what what, uh, what there's one company called Grab, uh, which then went to the U.S. stock market, uh, issued a spec, um, and and uh, with a valuation of forty billion dollars, which it would have never been able to, um, you know, raise in in any Southeast Asian market. It's just subscale, you know. And but I mean that that, that was just a valuation. Now it's more like ten billion dollars because the valuations have dropped uh, dramatically, and there's nothing to hold it. Um, so. Um, so I see uh, valuation and capital being driven by a number of factors. Number one, you need a whale 
to uh, to anchor, um, and a lot of the uh, time in in this part of the world, on that in that part of the world, uh, the whale was um, you know uh, Masaoishi's son, uh, and um, and then you need the cascading effect of capital, which is when you have one successful company uh, that creates a, a small ecosystem that that um, that gets created around it. Uh, and when sentiments turn, the whole environment just changes, um, you know, and then it and it moves on. Um, so China is at a point right now where um, the state is um, coming to terms. I mean, what what the leadership has done in the last two years. Uh, is to try and create um, a benign ecosystem where the private sector and the and the state-owned enterprises can can work with each other um, and 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 exchange information even uh, because you know the what they what they did was to force the fintech startups in in China uh, to be aligned to the large banks so you have um, you know Alibaba with I think it's ICBC and then uh, Baidu with another of the big four banks and, and so on. Um, and, and then they also put, um, you know, party officials as uh, board members and, and stuff like that. Um, so, so they're trying to figure out a system where uh, the state at the end of the day has, um, you know, has a control, but still allowing them to op operate uh, as a for-profit uh, institution. Um, but when you have so much orchestration going on, um, uh, something gives uh, along the way. Um, you know, it's it's impossible to um, you know to to predict markets, predict demand, predict changes in in technology and so on. So so this is the early days of the next phase of China's development. Uh, but because capital is moving, uh, then you look at India and you look at Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is like the world's um, a petri dish uh, for cross-border developments, um, you know. But having said that, I would say something that Africa is just coming up so well. It's it's amazing. Uh, you know, in the payment space, uh, the MTOs, uh, just a few weeks ago, I, I, I was... Um, uh, I, I, I'm not sure which of the MTOs, the money transfer organizations, said that their profit for the year last year was $10 million. Um, and, and that was really good news because there's real profit to be made uh, when you have a technology-driven uh, innovation in areas like payments. On the one hand, it, it collapses prices for the consumer. On the other hand, it actually still creates um, a, a profitable um, business for you know for the for the service provider, uh, and and to think that it's possible uh, without bringing a Visa or a Mastercard in, um, and where where prices are you know exorbitant, uh, and only a few people have access to payments. Uh, and at, at, at very high prices and the banks are incredibly profitable and everyone else is poor, um, you know, to see this kind of development in, in Africa um, is just very hard, um, heartwarming. What, what, what's changed in Africa that's driven that? Um, they started on a, on the lowest common denominator, the lowest, uh, they started on the lowest layer of the slate. That's, that's, that's all that happened. Um, and uh, they were able to move faster uh, because um, uh, there was not enough legislations put in place. So like, like Nigeria just put its payments infrastructure legislation two years ago. Uh, you know, so, um, and so if you're a, you're a fast um, 
startup person, and 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 I know a couple of the two of the uh, founders of the payment networks in in uh, one in one he one in Uganda and the other one in uh, in Ghana, and uh, uh, they just need to move fast. Um, you know, and and anything that you can start in any one country, uh, you can make it. Um, you can make it um, cross border immediately. So you don't have very much, um, you know, foreign exchange restrictions. You don't have very much, um, you know, telecommunication restrictions. Um, and they're doing it all very much on the back of a telecommunications network, not on the banking network. Uh, and then the banks come after them and say, "Oh, you know, they, you're not regulating them as you're regulating the banks." Uh, telling the regulators this, uh, and then, then they start to try and rein them in. Um, and what's interesting is that um, uh, projects that work in one part of Africa um, may not necessarily work in another part of Africa. So if you take if you take, um, um, you know, m for example, which everybody knows about, m is was an incredible success in Kenya, where the unbanked population is high, something like 80% or something like that. By the time you reach Nigeria, uh, Nigeria is a huge country, uh, nearly 200 million people, something like that. Um, and, um, you know, in the cities, uh, M-Pesa couldn't work because uh, most people in the cities were banked. And by the time you reach South Africa, M-Pesa is totally irrelevant because it's a largely banked population. Um, even if you're 60 or 70 percent banked, an M-Pesa doesn't work. Um, you know, so, um, so you can see that... Um, the, you see the whole spectrum uh, of banked and unbanked populations, uh, and then you can play different markets for different types of products. Um, you know, and and uh, and and you'll see that um, in in more greenfield markets where the banking industry hasn't got into, uh, that's where uh, a lot of the innovations are taking place today. In in China, you know, I, I've been thinking or seeing things kind of back and forth on how optimistic or pessimistic I should think about uh, the overall uh, economy and political situation with uh, Xi Jinping. He, he seems to have, as you were mentioning, he, he does want to have a, a high degree of control and does not brook any certainly direct criticism. I, I don't know how much that damages the, the economy in terms of uh, innovation, freedom of thoughts, or, or people kind of shying away from the limelight or, or big projects and risk because they can attract the negative attention from, from the government as well. Uh, having things like a political representation on the board or keeping offices for the government or being an example like Jack Ma, where uh, the government really comes down on you and kind of stifling uh, the next generation of uh, entrepreneurs, uh, as well as uh, state-directed money uh, now being less efficient than it once was now that the infrastructure has uh, been built out. So I, I see a lot of things going on there, some very positive as well. And I, I, I don't know if that just means they're going to be middle of the road or or I, if I should be pessimistic, like either really clamping down, this is the next Soviet Union. You know, I come from Singapore where you have a benevolent, uh, you know, leader uh, who... There's a, there's a comedian... Who calls Singapore uh, a rich North Korea? <laughs> That's a well, comedian, not me saying yeah. that. But <laughs> well, the the economists called Singapore the nanny state, and it's stuck. And and Singapore just enjoys being called the nanny state, um, you know. 
and uh, and um, the thing is that um, um, and um, it's a huge battle between the state and the private sector in all of the different countries in the world. Um, and uh, we now live in an age, especially after COVID, where the state has become competent. Uh, you know, I was in Rwanda and the state is competent. I was in Burundi last year and, and the, the COVID-19 um, uh, administration process worked. I mean, you know, you go when you land in the airport, you give you an app and all that. And these are otherwise dysfunctional state. Um, so around the world, there's a phenomenon where the state is becoming competent. Um, and the state is saying that we can, um, you know, we can curate this process. We can make this work. I, I hope that trend um, comes to the United States. Um, not necessarily. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we don't know. You see, the thing is, the big thing about the U.S. is that all of the different, all of the pillars of society, the state, uh, the big business, uh, the, you know, the, the, the huge individual, uh, and then you have the unions, and then you have the individual, uh, every one of them are equally powerful or, or you know, juxtaposing with each other. And that's, that's why it looks like um, a cacophony of um, of noise and um, and tensions and so on. Democracy um, is very messy. That's true. Democracy is very messy. You know, so um, you know, and 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 um, and the U.S. pays the price for what it is. Uh, whereas almost every other country thinks that they can curate the process. Um, you know, and and it's either the state curates the process or. Um, someone um, like in Germany, it's the big businesses that that curate the process, and the the state has a benign relationship with the big businesses. You know, after World War II, uh, the state needed the big businesses to help build some of these infrastructures, so they they have a position in 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 Germany, which uh, you know, which is not the same as you know, the American big 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 businesses and so on. Um, you know, so so I think that uh, if you pull out the labels, whether they're communist or, or socialist or, or, you know, whatever, um, you know, that's the big tension that's happening. The tension between state, big business, uh, the indivi uh, individual, you know, uh, ultra high networks who are themselves a power a force to reckon with. I mean, if you put a Bill Gates in any other country, he's a country, he's a, he's the size of an economy, uh, you know, so... Um, so that's the, the tension that uh, every country is trying to deal with. And China has had uh, a small window of between 2001 uh, at the start of the WTO to about 2014, where the state uh, didn't understand how big uh, private enterprise could become. Uh, and they left it uh, very much, uh, uh, gave it a free hand. Um, and if you take Alipay and, and, and WeChat Pay, for example, that was, those were created in 2010 uh, at the start of the life being given to the mobile revolution. And the U.S. players nearly missed that. I mean, the, the Facebooks of the world didn't make the transition from desktop to mobile very easily. They, they even tried to reject it, you know, and uh, the first iterations of Facebook on, on the mobile were terrible. Um, you know, and uh, and 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 uh, uh, Alipay and WeChat were natives to to that revolution. They they didn't have a legacy, so so they could build their entire uh, you know infrastructure on that. And it was a small window between 2010 and 2014. Um, 
2013, I was sitting for for uh, for for lunch with a uh, with a regulator, and, he, and she was asking me, uh, you know, how do you regulate uh, non-bank paying payment institutions? And then I'm saying, like, excuse me, you you've got you've got Alipay uh, already. It's like you're asking me this question now. You know, this is so interesting. Yeah, the horses um, you know, already left the barn, huh? The, the horses left the barn, um, you know, so, and they were only just then asking the question because they weren't given the mandate to ask the question before. And Alipay, Ali in a large country of 1.5 billion people, started in a small town called Hangzhou, which is a province. So, and then they became national, right? So, so all that uh, is a small window. And then once the state gets the hang of it and puts in place all the structures, uh, that ain't going to happen no more in China. Okay, you're not going to get another um, a startup becoming a giant uh, and and creating an infrastructure that is even more powerful than the state. Now, in 2014, see when Xi Jinping came into power, uh, all of us thought that um, you know that that you know okay, um, good, um, you get transition of power and so on, uh, and and he's just the next leader. 2018, when he when he said that he was going to uh, go for a third term, or he's going to remove the term limit, um, the conversation in China among my Chinese friends was that, oh, that's good for business. Um, you know, we can plan further, uh, and 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 we can, um, you know, we 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 can have a more stable economy. There's not no changes in the leadership and so on. And then I was saying to them, guys, you know why you have a love. Uh, you, you have a, a limit on terms. It's because of you know the past of the Cultural Revolution. You had three, four monsters who, who, who were who were throwing their weight around, you know. And and it's like the, the Chinese had completely forgotten about the Cultural Revolution. Uh, yeah, and, Ding, and Ding Xiaoping is, is probably rolling in his grave. And then Deng Xiaoping, you know, worked so hard to to create this this structure, right? To 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 not allow anyone uh, the cult of personality and all that. Uh, absolutely, you know. So so in, in twenty eighteen, uh, most of my Chinese friends thought like nothing wrong with this. It's good. And and Chinese people, you know, um, you know, they like to say they got five thousand years of history. They never forget it all. That's total bullshit. Okay, <laughs> they they are transactional. Uh, you know, they, they know how to be nice to you. And tomorrow, if you are bad, they'll tell you that I'll never forget. And the next day, when you become good again, they'll be the best of friends again. I mean, and, they, and I think the they, cultural revolution kind of wiped out a lot of that history. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the, uh, the 5000 year history was not even the cultural. It was like, you know, at the end of the Qing dynasty, uh, that's when uh, when to be Chinese was to be totally ashamed of this um, dynastic thing, and and then they started the, the intellectuals started scrambling for ideas on how to govern the modern state and all that, and it took them easily sixty years uh, of incredible infighting before they they stabilized the whole process, uh, and then they misused it, uh, you know, which is a cultural revolution. And the cultural revolution, I wish. Uh, and I, if my Chinese friends are listening to this, I wish there will be a museum to the Cultural Revolution so that people don't forget what it was about. Um, you know, and 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 you ask any of the older generation, they have all of them remember something. You know, they were sent to the farms, they they didn't go to school, um, all you know, all kinds of things. Uh, they have a they have a relative who who was killed, and or or they got they got their the property stolen, and it's all within uh, reason memory. It's not like it's far away. Anyway, so they, in 2018, everyone forgot that. 
right? And then by the time uh, he was uh, he was mid midway into the COVID thing, when the Chinese started understand realizing that actually the Chinese style of dealing with COVID wasn't um, you know wasn't the best way after all, uh, because when at the start of the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, when China was able to incarcerate one 30 billion, 30 million people in, in the city of Wuhan, it's like, wow, this country has got its act together. You know, the state is able to, to, to be decisive about uh, how it deals with this thing. Uh, you know, and then, uh, and then when it didn't come up with a, with a suitable uh, vaccine, uh, and then the, you know, the, the new variants started affecting people and stuff like that. And then at the grassroots level, there was a lot of uh, mismanagement of um, of the funds. Um, you know, there, there were companies that were that were um, uh, creating uh, situations where uh, they they had to have lockdowns, and and the and the local governments couldn't pay for the some of these lockdowns. Uh, then the system started to fray, and uh, and people started to realize that maybe what the government did wasn't right after all. And by towards the end of the COVID. Uh, crisis, uh, Shanghai was shut down for nearly two months, and and it was well, Shanghainese were putting out videos like you wouldn't believe. They were in tears, they were heartbroken, and they were hungry because there was not food in the in the refrigerator and all that. Um, you know, so so and then towards and even after that, my staff, um, you know, uh, towards the end, um, uh, all of my staff had. COVID and two of them had older people who died uh, in their families, um, you know, and and, theref- and and then other people telling me the same stories. So it was, um, so the Chinese people are beginning to come to terms with the fact that the state is not always right. Uh, and what we need now is a system where the, uh, the freedom of information and the freedom of flow of information is so important to, um, to China as it is to any other country in the world, um, you know, and Singapore today has got at least ten thousand uh, ultra high networks from China uh, living in Singapore in some form or another. Okay, either as permanent residents buying properties. Uh, I mean, the inflow is so high that. Uh, Singapore just uh, last month uh, introduced new property measures where if you are a foreigner buying a land, a property in Singapore, you pay a 60%, 60% stamp duty to the government because the government just doesn't want to see this amount of money um, you know, uh, flooding the system because it just screws up the entire economy. Okay, and and um, and there are speakers, by the way, uh, China hands, who will say things like, um, and and if you hear me say this line, you know people who have heard him say this before will know exactly who I'm speaking about. Who will say something like 250 million Chinese tourists leave the country every year, and 250 million Chinese tourists come back home. Um, you know, so uh, he, he was trying to point. I mean, this the the, the China supporters who say these things are trying to point out that um, you know China is a much more freer country than you think. Um, it is to a point, um, you know, uh, and um, and in the good years, uh, the state didn't spend enough time putting in place uh, the governance structures for an open economy. Okay, so now we are entering um, not dark times, but uncertain times for which uh, people want to have certainty that if they go to court, that they will get uh, judicial treatment, which is independent of the state. 
um, you know, if they went to medical treatment that they will get, um, you know, they, I mean, medical treatment in China is improving incredibly. Uh, but, um, you know, if you, it, there's a big difference if you can pay and you cannot pay, um, you know, things like that. And, and, um, uh, and so on. And, and so some of the social structures that they could have put in place, uh, they're still working on it. Uh, and, and the big thing is this, um, the state believes that it can manage information. Now, when you talk about chips and you talk about AI, you're talking about a freedom of information, an unprecedented level of freedom of information that is going to sweep every country in the world. Right. So, um, you know, in as much as the U.S. looks dysfunctional in the in the platform economy, uh, every other country in the world is going to have to deal with it. Uh, and when you have an economy that pretends that it can curate the process. OK, my friend Jimmy Wales uh, of Wikipedia fame uh, hates. I mean, he doesn't ever say it to anyone, but but Wikipedia is banned in China just because they wouldn't take out uh, Taiwan and uh, Tibet from the uh, from 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 the platform. Uh, you know, uh, how much more is AI going to um, you know inundate the system with information that you don't like? Uh, you know, so so I don't. Uh, as long as now, Chinese people are incredibly smart and bright and amazing. You know, even the people working for me, they, I mean, some of these kids, they are just incredibly bright, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and given a chance to fly, uh, they're going to create amazing things. Uh, but when you have a state trying to second guess itself, uh, that's not where it's going to happen. You know, yeah, so no, no, the question is, is definitely not the Chinese people. It's definitely that the top of the Communist Party. Uh, how much are they going to clamp down and how much will that impact uh, yeah, China's long term growth prospects? Long term goal, as long as they have capital of their own, they, they will they are able to take it uh, to some extent. Uh, but two things that will determine the future of any country, not just China, in uh, technology. One is capital. The other is freedom of information, information flow. Uh, th yeah. The extent to which different countries curate this process uh, will see winners and losers. Um, you know, so uh, as a speech I gave in in um, in in uh, Nanjing, uh, I think two years ago now, they, they were looking for foreigners who can help them figure out how to bring uh, microchip manufacturers uh, to Nanjing and set up office. And every major province in China has got government incentives to try and bring uh, chip manufacturers to, to the province. Then I said, you know, um, my knowledge of chips and my knowledge of the best of American technology, you know, you take the iPhone, you take uh, Boeing 777. Uh, Boeing 777 is made in uh, 15, 16 different countries. Um, you know, the iPhone is made in China. It's an American product, uh, you know. So uh, America has figured out how to benefit from best of class from around the world uh, and still call it American. Um, and China is so caught up in being, um, you know, and, and Xi Jinping has a program called Made in China, right, 2030. So uh, that, that being made in China is a big deal. Um, you know, so uh, knowledge today is from around the world. Uh, you know, um, the Chinese will figure it out over time. Uh, they will see where their deficits are. 
um, you know, but but right now this is big thing about um, about about being made in China by Chinese people uh, and so on. Uh, and and as long as they're caught up in that kind of thinking, um, you know, yeah, when you have a 1.5 billion people, um, you know, it's a good critical mass to choose from. You know, you don't have to look at other countries for talent. Uh, but but talent is peculiar. It's not. It's not any one ethnic group or any one community. Um, you know, it's 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 popping up in different parts of the world. So it's it's you know, different uh, cultures, I mean, different I'm, ways of thinking, different everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 chip industry, for example, the, the people I know in the industry, they they start their job in in a, a project in in Silicon Valley, and then it moves to Japan, and then it moves to Shanghai, and then it moves to Singapore, and then it moves to uh, Brussels, and then it moves back to London, and then moves back to uh, to Silicon Valley. So it's like it, in in a twenty four hour time frame, uh, the project is actually going around the world, um, you know, and 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 I, actually the U.S. has figured out. Um, how to, um, you know, uh, draw that from around the world. Um, you know, yes, there's a problem with creating employment in the U.S., um, continuing to be a manufacturing uh, hub and so on. Um, you know, and that's what the U.S. has given up in exchange for being a, a, a global, um, uh, you know, a global player that way. Yeah, yeah, making uh, more money is, is way more important than... Uh... Uh, mm. for for corporations than uh, having it just in one place. Yeah, there's a lot of issues around that, the supply chain and um, uh, having resilience and more than one. But yeah, all, all of these topics, I'm, I'm telling you, I can have uh, 50 questions of you. Uh, but I'll ask another uh, big question that somebody asked of me just recently is, uh, should we worry be thinking about changes to dollar dominance in, in the world? Should we prepare for that? Is that around the corner? or? Yeah, so... Um, this whole idea of a reserve, global reserve currency or a global dictating currency, right? Um, the, the, I mean, um, we have, there's so much noise in, in this area. I, I don't even know uh, where to start without going back to first principles. First principle is the U.S. never set out to become the, the uh, making the dollar the, the world's reserve currency. Uh, it happened despite the U.S. being protectionist. Okay, so it, there was no working paper in the Fed or in the Treasury saying, okay, let's make you know the U.S. dominant. And in fact, uh, the U.S. was increasingly becoming a deficient nation to the rest of the world because the rest of the world wanted to sell to the U.S. And the U.S. was a big buyer of goods and services from the rest of the world and paying that out in dollars. Um, and, and of course, the Marshall Plan and, and helping uh, Europe to recuperate uh, and, and that sort of internationalized the dollar. And when the U.S. blocked the dollar from coming back into the economy, there was enough money, enough dollars circulating outside the U.S. Uh, to become an economy by itself. Um, you know, and in terms of U.S. treasuries, um, you know, uh, the, the idea is that uh, the U.S. can continue to uh, create debt. Uh, because it's the best performing um, asset uh, for any central bank to carry, you know, and 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 people who talk about uh, the the prestige of a uh, global reserve currency or, or being uh, being able to issue debt worldwide don't realize that what that country is doing is working for the rest of the world. You know, if I as a Singapore central bank uh, carry U.S. Treasury on my balance sheet, and that's because I'm going to see a return on it, uh, and the U.S. is working its ass out to to pay me. 
Okay, so so when we get our first principles right, um, uh, then um, you know then we work out who might be the next player. Okay, now the the China does have an ambition of becoming a, a respected currency in the world, uh, and it doesn't mind the idea of it becoming the reserve currency of the world without becoming the reserve currency of the world. It has no intention to let go of control over its currency, no intention at all. Um, you know, capital account convertibility is limited in China. And even when there is a, um, you know, there, there is a kind of a fiction that you think that you can repatriate money out of China easily, uh, they can shut it down anytime they want because it's, it's a software driven thing. That is, permission is given electronically and they can withhold permission whenever they want. Uh, you know, and today there are limitations in, in expatriating money out of renminbi out of China, even for my business. Then you see all these conversations, the talk that goes on Saudi Arabia and China, Brazil and China, South Africa and China, um, you know, and Russia and China, um, um, you know, uh, doing deals to settle transactions in renminbi, right? Now, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying never say never, okay? I don't, I'm not saying that the renminbi will never become a global currency. I'm, what I'm saying is look at it, look at what is actually happening on the ground right now and then start uh, figuring out where it's going to go. Okay, what's happening on the ground is this. Firstly, there's not enough renminbi outside of China in the first place uh, because of uh, capital account re restrictions. Okay, so um, um, you know the the Chinese don't want to see a lot of their currency actually floating outside the economy. And guess what? The renminbi outside of China is cheaper than the renminbi in China. In fact, the Chinese uh, regulations are all stacked up against its own corporations borrowing in renminbi outside of China because uh, that would mean there'll be a leakage, uh, you know, that that they, they can bring renminbi back into the country and, and uh, scupper the, the banking system. And the reason that renminbi is more expensive in China is because uh, that's how the, the, the regulators have, or rather the central bank has kept uh, the renminbi artificially um, priced uh, in order to support the banking system and, and also to absorb a lot of the inefficiencies in the economy. Now, thirdly, when a country makes an agreement in China to, to settle payments in, in renminbi, uh, because there's not enough renminbi outside of China, technically what happens is that each of these countries or the large corporations or their suppliers, their banks, have to have an account in China. Uh, and uh, the renminbi never leaves the country, okay? Um, please, this is the actual operation on the ground and nobody is talking about this. And then what happens is in Brazil, an ICBC um, or, a, or a BOC, Bank of China, has full license to, uh, to, uh, to accept payments in Brazilian real and then have a full business in Brazil so that they can recycle the, the Brazilian currency and give, make the uh, exporter or the importer imagine that he's transacting in renminbi. But actually what happens is that the, the ICBC of uh, Brazil is actually settling the renminbi in China. Okay, so I, I as importer needs to pay a Chinese corporation in China for something. I bring my real to the to the uh, to the central uh, to the bank. Uh, the bank then dictates an exchange rate to me, and guess what? The exchange rate is pegged against the U.S. dollar. 
Okay, except there is no dollar transaction. It's just that if your your local currency uh, is um, whatever it is against the renminbi, uh, but here's the exchange rate I'm willing to pay, right? And then they they take the the local currency, whether it's the Brazilian currency or the South African uh, rand, um, you know, and and then they have the, the Chinese banks are caught in having to uh, build a local business uh, to to get rid of that um, local currency. Right, and they they make a huge profit uh, in settling on behalf of the of the importer, um, you know, in in uh, renminbi in China, right? Now, a, a country like uh, Saudi Arabia does buy a lot from China, so they can afford to have a hundred and fifty billion dollar current account uh, in a Chinese bank because um, they, they trade much, much more than that in any one year. So, um, you know, so it's okay to be paid in renminbi. The renminbi never leaves uh, in China, and then they use that same renminbi to buy stuff uh, that they then export. So it's a fiction. It's the money doesn't really move. Then the Chinese banks that are full-functioning banks in all of these countries are exposed to the local economies, and they're sitting on local currency that they don't know what to do with. Um, you know, so if you if you ask me if there's one danger that is picking up and it will become news item in three to five years time is the Chinese bank's exposure to local currencies around the world. You know, so that's the reality of it. Now, I'm not saying that 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 the U.S. dollar will not go into a decline uh, or that there will be another currency that might become more important and so on. And Bitcoin and and um, and cryptocurrencies are also an uh, alternative uh, platform, which is um, you know not beholden to any state and all that. Okay, uh, so so the the jury is out. I sat with the governor of the central bank of Sri Lanka in his office overlooking the port. And, and he said, um, you know, the, the Chinese central bank gave us $30 billion in, uh, in uh, um, you know, forex um, um, cover. Um, and, uh, and we can't use it because the Chinese contractors all want to be paid in dollars. Um, you know, and that's another thing that is not being talked about, which is that, um, you know, for all these Belt and Road projects, uh, the contractors, the Chinese contractors, all build in dollars, almost all. Very rarely, there might have been one or two showcase uh, transactions which are in renminbi, but almost all the rest of them are in dollars because the Chinese um, contractors get rewarded, or rather, they get a, a tax concession when they bring dollars back into the economy. You know, so uh, so that's the so, reality. So my of- answer is going to be: uh, Don't worry, no big, <laughs> no big change in the world. Uh, uh, well, uh, or, if, or the how it come, if, if the change is going to come, if the change is going to come, it's going to come from a different uh, angle. Something more organic uh, to the how business is done, efficient, how business is done. low cost. Now, you're not a big supporter of or uh, have much faith, I guess, in uh, central bank digital currencies. Oh, I've got easily twenty reasons uh, to go. <laughs> okay, to. all uh, right, just give easily. me nineteen. We only have time for yeah. nineteen. <laughs> you know, the thing is, number one, the, the very basic uh, architecture of CBDC is that um, it bypasses the banking system. Okay, number one. So you, all the countries that have a CBDC project going uh, un, uh, underway uh, have to find excuses to say why they want to use the banking system to distribute the CBDC. Uh, CBDC is essentially a, a relationship between the end user and the central bank, whoever is issuing uh, the CBDC, okay, number one. So, so you actually just 
um, you know, uh, with one stroke, you render your entire banking system um, um, obsolete. Uh, you know, obsolete. And oh, yeah, I'm all for it then. Okay, and then, <laughs> and then and then you and then you you claw back and you you start to say, uh, but it's okay. We we want the banks to be the ones to distribute the CBDC and all that. That's number one. Okay, number two, when you see. Uh, the way in which stable coins and, and cryptocurrencies are, are, are constructed uh, in an open source universe, people don't realize that the future of digital money is in the utility of the money. It's not in the price of the money. Um, you know, so you take anyone on a Solana, for example, 300,000 programmers, you know, building applications uh, around Solana. The, the central banks have no idea uh, of no, 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 no sense of dimension of what they are up against in terms of utility, okay? Uh, so you create a CBDC, you force it on the economy, uh, and nobody uses it, or nobody has a motivation to create applications on it. In fact, you will not even allow them to do it because you, you won't be able to control, and, and, and central banks uh, don't want that amount of control on, on, on an economy, right? And, and then I, I, I can just keep going. Huh? Um, now, uh, Canada, the, the the truckers riot. I don't know why the the central bank, I mean the Canadian uh, regulators, want to issue a CBDC in the face of the fact that there is no faith in in the in the people that that uh, that they will ever allow uh, the state to turn off their bank accounts on them uh, again like this. Okay, I mean even Janet Yellen, I I've. I, the thing is this, the, the entire world's uh, central bankers, they, they meet at the Bank for International Settlements, um, and then they have this love fest. They just love each other, and they just copy each other uh, in, a, in a whole range of uh, areas, including... Like a, a lot uh, of groupthink or echo chamber effect? Yeah, there's a groupthink thing. Uh, and, and I'm just uh, surprised that even the, regular, the U.S. and Janet Yellen, I've met her before at, at a meeting in, in San Francisco. She looks like the most sensible person in the world. But then um, it's groupthink, you know. Um, yeah, you, you hear these things like, oh, uh, we have to catch up to China. They're so far ahead on central bank digital currencies. Not necessarily. We have to, we have not to hurry up. China. And... Yeah, it's not necessarily China. Like, like, like. Inflation targeting, for example, it was a creation of New Zealand uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and, and the New Zealand central bank governor gave himself a KPI and said, you know what, my job is to manage the, the, the inflation uh, between 2% up and 2% down. And then I go home and have, I have a cup of tea, uh, you know, and, and, then, and then it just became global. Uh, you know, every every other regulator, you don't even have to be a China to 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 uh, to influence uh, uh, trends in the in the in the central bank arena. Now, then I, I talked to central banks in the Caribbean, too, uh, and then one in South America who almost started a, a CBDC and didn't. And then I, uh, I was very fortunate to meet him last year because I was curious because the first one of the first countries in the world to even think CBDC was Uruguay, right? Uh, and I know that from 2017 or something. And then they, they called the experiment a success and then they shelved it. So I finally met with the governor who, who, was, who was the head of that project in its time. And he said that, oh, because it wasn't fashionable and we didn't have the money, so we, we just shelved it. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, and then the central banks of uh, Bahamas, um, 
and and um, um, and and um, um, uh, borrow, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, I forget the name of the other one. But the the, the ones in the Caribbean, uh, the ones who have started their CBDC projects, all of them uh, have less than one percent utility. Like the governor gives speeches saying, "Oh, we have got this project and all that," and privately, the con in, to me, they say the the take up is less than one percent. Why? Because if you take an island state of like in, in uh, Barbados, right, or, or, or Bahamas, 99% uh, of the money comes in uh, with tourists, uh, you know, swiping their credit cards from the US uh, into the banking system, which is owned by foreign banks. Uh, and, and the whole idea of microfinance and, and, and banking the unbanked is to plug into that system not create an alternative system uh, that will keep poor people poor, you know? Uh, you know, so, so these are all the number of things that are, are taking place that just, I see, I, as clear as daylight, I see that CBDCs is, and I'm willing to say this because if I'm wrong, that's fine. I, I, I like to see how wrong can I possibly be. Oh no, put, put a stake in I the see. ground, Emmanuel. What? Have, Put a uh, stick in the ground. Good, yeah. good to have an opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. All that experience you know, was, is going to lead to some some opinion. Right. And the project in China <laughs> is and the project in China is is still a pilot. Uh, the the state is so afraid to to make it uh, go real time. Uh, you know, and to and to I mean, like I said, I, I had twenty reasons, but I'm just going one after the other. And to incentivize the population to use uh, central bank digital currencies. In, uh, requires marketing money, okay, uh, which an Alipay could spend because it was funded with private money, uh, but a state doesn't have the money to uh, to incentivize its population to to move from fiat to, uh, I mean, both are fiat, but but from um, from physical cash to 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 um, to CBDCs, um, you know, because you you have to educate, you have to um, cajole. Uh, and so on, and the ones that have gone live um, just is uh, is dead in the water at the moment, you know. So, um, so now you do see some use cases in uh, in blockchain uh, as opposed to cryptocurrencies. Yes, the natural CBDC are uh, stable coins, okay. Uh, and I do see a roadmap where and and an economy like the US with its uh, with its you know belief in in personal liberties and so on. Um, I do see a roadmap where one day uh, banks will compete on issuing their own stable coins. And the stable coin is very likely to be the CBDC that the central banks want, want to create. Um, so, um, you know, and that's because uh, there is a need for a token or a, or a, or a currency or a platform uh, that, is, that, that, can, that can transact value in an increasingly digital world. You know, so that's not going away. Uh, do it's do just you think that... governments would allow uh, that since it, it kind of removes their hands from the levers of the economy? They're not able to influence rates as much. They're not able to control the flow of uh, uh, fiscal yeah, the, the agenda, and monetary policy. So this is what I say in my book, right? That the future of finance is actually created by dysfunctional states. It's not created by policy. It's never been. Uh, it'll uh, start at the smaller economies and go up. Sometimes in the smaller economies, but the most dysfunctional economy in the world right now is the U.S. Um, you know, it's a it's a country that now has a national debt of thirty one trillion dollars, 
as against the GDP of $21 trillion, which is, which is like, uh, in other words, the, its ability to meet its commitments is now a moot point. So, the, so that is the economy. And the big question is, how can they export the debt? And, and uh, the best way to export the debt is to do it digitally. You know, so, um, you know, so, so I mean, yes, um, you know, Mozambique and, and, uh, and, uh, and Tanzania, uh, Tanzania is a good country, but, but uh, Zimbabwe and so on, uh, and Venezuela uh, are dysfunctional countries too. Uh, and, and there are, you know, a lot of like Turkey right now, uh, it's a big user of, uh, of Bitcoin. Uh, but th these are small compared to um, the issues that the U.S. is facing, uh, you know, and the U.S. is always move from one crisis to the next it's you know it's there's no white paper on the next uh, on the uh, on the next game plan uh, and and the white papers that are issued by the central bank like the the treasury right now i'm just surprised that they even think it that way um, you know they, it's almost like the central bank and the treasury doesn't have a feel of its own nation state you know like like the feel of the ground yeah, well, yeah. There's that famous quote of the U.S. always does the right thing after going through every other yeah, option first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, after having tried everything else. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah. My my thinking um, goes in every direction because although my 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 DNA, my 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 the industry in which I've grown up uh, in adulthood was banking and finance, but when I completed my book. I, I came to the conclusion that, oh my goodness, if the future is the personalization of finance, then, then we are looking at the personalization of society. Uh, you know, so it's not, you know, it, it's not just um, a trend that is going to affect um, uh, banking, uh, you know, and, and so on. So it's, it's, it's uh, if, if, if this is how fundamental um, a, a trend it's going to be, um, then the, it, it empowers the individual, you know, and so on. Actually, someone who reviewed my book asked me uh, if I had read another book. Uh, I forget the people who wrote, the two guys who wrote it, but it's called A Sovereign Individual, right? You, you should look that up too. And I said, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that someone had actually given thought to that. Um, and what and and what that book talks about is how information empowers the individual, and and it's a very U.S. centric, um, you know, perspective. Uh, but uh, I was talking about the same thing from the the banking industry or the finance industry uh, that the that as the individual gets uh, empowered increasingly, um, um, you know, uh, it has an impact on intermediation, it's an impact on on society, uh, impact on policy, and so on. So, um, you know, so, so, you know, this conversation can go in any which direction. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I didn't even get to uh, all the book questions and personalization about the Ukraine <laughs> uh, invasion, about uh, so many other things. But yeah, hopefully we, we can get you back uh, sometime. Uh, otherwise, yeah. uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. No, pleasure. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you for your uh, open-ended questions and, uh, um, you know, enabling me to go back to first principles to try and put some points across. There's a lot of noise in the industry. Um, and, and the best way to, to deal with that is to take a view of where, you know, and my view is the increasing personalization of finance and then check on every development as they, they take place. So like right now, this week, uh, the SEC is going after... Coinbase and 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 um, and, um, uh, finance? And, and finance, right? Uh, and so you know, um, 
people looking for like, okay, what's next and stuff. Um, there's a lot of what's next. Uh, it's very noisy, but but there's an inevitable trend that even the SEC will not be able to, um, you know, to 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 scupper. Um, I, I, the, the allegory I give, or rather the, 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 the parallel that I give is that if you look up the photograph of New York in 1901, when, you know, um, the Ford cars came into the market, the, the streets were just filled with, horse-drawn carriages and maybe one, um, you know, motor vehicle. And it was, it was large, it was noisy, it was slow, it was heavy, it damaged the road, uh, it frightened the horses uh, and all that, right? And then it, just 10 years later, 1909, it was just the opposite. It was like so many more uh, motor vehicles and very few horse-drawn carriages. And in the early days, all the rules were stacked up against the motor vehicle because they wanted to preserve um, the society that they understood. Uh, you just Google this, a photograph of, of um, New York City street, um, you know, 1901, 1909. Uh, you know, and oh. that's, that's what we're going through in finance right now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'll check it out. Well, that's uh, Emmanuel Daniel, the author of The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finances Here and the founder of The Asian Banker. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, guys. Take care, John. Thanks, Emmanuel. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for listening, and please hit subscribe.